Well, uh, if you would, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. We're jumping back into the first part of the passage, verses 1 through 5 this morning. We, um, we hit and highlighted verses 1 through 10, really went over kind of an overview, but now we're actually going to go back. We're going to do a deep dive. You're like, I thought we were doing a deep dive. Well, now we're doing an even deeper dive um, and uh, into some parts of Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 in particular of the next couple of weeks. Here, God's word, we're going to read verses 1 through 5. It says this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of a disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is the end, reading, end of reading of God's word. May the grass wither and the flower fade. May the word of our God May it stand forever. Well, have you ever seen the show Walking Dead? It was filmed in uh, Sonoya, not too far from here. It was a, a huge hit for a number of years. It was a series about a group of human survivors that seek to stay alive in the midst of a zombie apocalypse. Now, just looking at this crowd, I totally can see that this is a crowd that loves the zombie apocalypse sort of genre of movies and television. Uh, but that's what it's about. Now, the show, the dri main driving force of the show, the catalyst that drives the action and the suspense of the show is, of course, zombies. But the characters throughout the show, they wouldn't necessarily call them zombies all the time. They actually had a, more, a primary name for these zombies, and they called them simply walkers. Walkers. Thus the name of the show, The Walking Dead. Now Ephesians 2 verse 1 says, We were dead, but we were also walking. We were dead, it says, in which you once walked. So we were therefore dead in sin and were walking, therefore we were the original walking dead. We were the zombie apocalypse before it was cool to put on television. And the New Testament takes up this metaphor idea of walking. Usually we hear uh, of walking, Paul uses it in a positive way, speaking of the spiritual life of a Christian, that you're to walk in, in the way of Jesus, you're to follow him. And what that refers to is you, the direction of your life is following Jesus, following his word, following the Spirit's guidance in your life. But we also see they can also be a walk that is for the spiritual dead. They walk following, following a particular direction, following guiding principles. And what is it that the spiritually dead follows? Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 we saw a couple weeks ago, and we did a, a deep dive into this understanding of what, not the, the fact that we are dead, and that therefore what we deserve, we are by nature objects of wrath, but we really didn't do a deep dive into, in our deadness and sin, what did we follow? What did we walk in, in that dead in sin? And we're going to work through each of these three things that we're dead in over the next couple weeks. It is a, an unholy trinity that we may have heard of before, that people will talk to about the great challenges of being that we fight against as Christians, is we fight against three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
This is the unholy trinity, the unholy alliance of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Kind of like the Axis powers of World War II, right? Germany, Italy, and Japan. And these three, the world, the flesh, and the devil, are bound up together to form a reign of terror, a reign of terror and difficulty and havoc and horror and destruction in God's worlds. And while the force of this unholy alliance are mentioned often in scattered ways throughout the scriptures, I want to give it highlight here, each of them in turn, because in very few places do we see all three mentioned all together. A succinct summary of what we face, of where we have come from, and what we now face is a great challenge and temptation as Christians. We are to give focus to the enormity of the power that, is, that, it, that suppressed us, that in our deadness to sin, what we followed and what we've been saved from. We've been saved from the world, saved from the flesh, saved from the evil one. And so while we looked at verses 2, 1 through 10, in brief and in summary, getting a sense of what is being communicated there, I now want to go back and look at five words, five specific words in verses 1 through 10 over the course of the next couple weeks. We're going to look at the world first today, then we're going to look at the devil, that'll be fun, and then the flesh, even more fun, but then we'll follow that up with some good days. We'll look at growth grace and we'll look at faith. We're going to look at, we're going to do a deep dive into each of these words. And so we're not going to be doing so much exposition of Ephesians 2. We're going to simply take each of these from this section and use it to dive deeply into a theological study of each of these. And so it's going to be a little bit crunchy, a little bit bony, a little bit theological. We're going to ask some questions and we're going to answer and give you some definitions. And so bear with me. It's going to be a lot of teaching in the next couple of weeks in particular this morning. But this, we're going to try to do this little mini-series within the larger series of Ephesians. And if I were to name this little mini-series, looking at these five words, I would simply declare it to be, I once was lost in the world, the flesh, and the devil, but now I'm found because of grace and faith. So first we start with this morning, part of the bad news, the unholy alliance. It begins with the world. And I want to look simply very quickly uh, this morning and try to describe to us, help us understand what is meant by the world when the scriptures talks about it. There has been much made in my own life. I'm 39. I'm almost a man. Next year I'll be 40, in which point I'll be officially a man. And then uh, in my lifetime, uh, there, there has been much made amongst the American church, in particular these three, the world, the flesh, and the devil, that speaks particularly about how we must avoid the world. I grew up in a particular, um, I was homeschooled in the particular genre of homeschool in which I was, I was raised. There was much to be said about avoidance of the world and the, in, the, 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 the creep of the world and integration of the world into the, the family or church life. And there has been much made, perhaps for the last 50 or 60 years in the American church, maybe because of the sexual revolution. I'm not sure exactly why. But that there is a need to be protected from, well, we use words like, we need to be protected from the world and be, you remain different from the culture. And much has been made about the denigration of our culture and our society and the loss of influence and the creep of the world. But there has, in the midst of those conversations, and there has been much good in it, there's also been much confusion in the warning about the world. And, and that confusion is in part because the Bible sometimes speaks about the, the uses of this word world in different ways in the Bible. The Greek word for world is the word cosmos. And it is used, not, it is used in various ways in the scriptures and in the New Testament. It has various depths of meaning. In fact, actually, its meaning is, has a, some depth and breadth of scope as to what is meant by it. So let me just kind of walk through an understanding of what the world is meant when it is referred to 
in the scriptures. Sometimes when the New Testament writers speak of the world, it is simply thinking of the spatial habitation of human beings, the material world, the universe. That is one way in which it can be referred to. Now that, in that sense, we, we, it is totally fine to love the world, right? We are to love God's creation. He's the one who formed it and made it. It is a good thing. God says, I have come to save the world. He loves his material world. Jesus came and took on a body to show us that there's not something wrong with the material world. He made it and formed it. The first thing God says about the material world after he's made it is what? He looks at the world at the end of each day of creation and says, it is good. But then a second way, a more often way in which referred to, is when it talks about the world, it's talking about humanity. Humanity, the whole of humanity. This this is the mass of physical human beings that reside in the world. This visible group of people. And in this, there is also goodness, right? God said not only is the world, the material world, the creation, the trees, and the forests, and the stars, and the heavens is good, but when he made man, he made the humanity, he looked at it and said, this is very good. But then there's this meaning of the world that is pressed deeper and refers to what we might call not just simply the physical humanity, but the spirit of humanity. This refers to the system and the pattern and principles that drive every aspect of humanity. This is the the things, the spiritual things of life that shapes our thinking and feeling and living or it shapes our organizing life, our family life, our work life, our vocations. And then even this word cosmos for world goes even deeper. It goes beyond that in breadth of meaning to a sense that actually combines the two, that combines this spiritual element that undergirds humanity, that affects how we think and feel, how we do all things, and connects it to both the spiritual systems with the material and physical world. What I want you to understand is this, is when the Bible talks about the world, it is talking both about the physical material world, but also the spiritual systems that shape and remake and twist the material physical world. That there is a system and pattern and principles that drive the world, that shape our visible seen structures and institutions and organizations amongst humanity. It actually does something with our worlds. For example, we might say that in humanity there is a there is spirit of evil that often runs in, 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 our, in, in our how we think, in particular, let's say the way we think about sexuality, it is broken and it is fallen. But that thinking and that 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 way that worldview about our sexuality actually begins to be made visible and has effect in our organizations and our institutions. That there are things that are evil organizations because of the spiritual system made up of by human beings. For example, a pornography industry is an organization. It is an industry that is undergirded by the spirit of humanity that is against God. There are other organizations in which this same spirit of humanity infiltrates and forms in such a way that we shape these organizations and then they shape us. And in other words, what I would say, when the Bible talks about the world... It is talking about this spirit of humanity that is against God and that actually takes hold and enslaves the things that God's world that he has made. We might call this a kingdom, the kingdom of this world, where it has a spiritual perspective at its root and its principle 
But that spiritual root is made manifest and it's made visible in the systems, in the structures, and in the human beings in this world. It affects everything. It affects the relational life, cultural life, material life, societal life. And one way to understand the story of the Bible, one way to understand the story of the Bible is as a tale of two kingdoms. The kingdom of this world, which is spiritual in its nature, but is made manifest in physical and visible forms, and the kingdom of heaven, or as Jesus calls it, the kingdom of God, that is spiritual in nature, but has physical, visible manifestations. And the Bible makes clear that in following the world, that in our deadness of sins, we were not following something that was morally neutral. That when it says that we were dead in sin, following the course of the world, that we were following something that was morally against God. It says this in 1 John 2, 15 and 16. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, speaking of the desires of the flesh and the desires of the, lie, of the, of the eyes and the pride of life, it's not from God. It's from the world. We see there the two kingdoms going playing out. They're against each other. Indeed, the way the Bible talks about this kingdom of the world, or simply put, the world, is actually speaks of it as if it's a living, pulsating, animating, forming, and transforming kingdom that is organic in the way it does life. So much so, the Bible actually referred to it almost in a personalized way. Here's what John 15, verses 18 and 19, Jesus' own words. He said this, if the world hates you, who, who hates? It's, it's giving a personalized sense of what, what the world does. The world hates you, and you know that it has, hatred, it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore, once again, the world Hates you. Therefore, we give this definition and understanding of what is meant by the world. We, would, we, should, we could say this. The world, as it's most often referred to in the Bible in its negative sense, is the morally active kingdom that is animated by hatred and antithesis to God and his kingdom. The world, as it's most often referred to, its deepest and broadest sense in the scriptures, refers to the morally active kingdom that is animated against, with hatred and antithesis against God and his kingdom. And in that antithesis, the God, God to God, the world has taken on the physical, the material, the visible structures of this world and actually enslaved them against God. In other words, what the kingdom of this world does is it takes the things that God forms and makes and gives to us as good things and twists them into being evil things. For example, is government simply a man-made idea? No. Government is actually instituted and given to us by God, it says. And yet we, and in order to pursue justice and goodness and the flourishing of life, and yet what does man do with that institution? We take it and we twist it for selfish means, for injustice, for destruction. We do this with so many other things in life. In fact, everything in life. We've taken God's great good gifts, such as religion and civics and economics and all things in society and life and sexuality and work, and we take them, these great things that God has given to us, and the kingdom of this world twists them for its own use. And what does it, what does it twist them for? For rebellion against God. It's taking the very things that God has given to us as gifts 
and actually twisting them to use them against God. And the core assumption that we must ask ourselves about all things in society and life is to what degree is this organization, this person, this aspect of my life being lived for the kingdom of God or for the kingdom of this world? Is this for God or is it against God? Now, understand the passage doesn't simply say that we followed the world. It actually says something specific about what happens there. It says in Ephesians 2, 2, that we followed the course of this world. And so we have to ask ourselves, what does that mean as well? We were saved from following the course of this world. Now, once again, we, this is crunchy, and we're doing teaching. And so when you do teaching, we get to dive into some definitions of words. The Greek word here for the word course is the word ion or eon. You've heard of that word, perhaps. It's not often used, but you may have heard the phrase, oh, that was eons and eons ago, meaning it was a long time ago. That was a different, or as we might put it in a literary word, that, that was a different age. That was a different length of time ago. Eon is an indefinite period of time that actually has certain characteristics to it. We, we, would, we often use the word age would be another way of putting eon. Oh, we live currently in what? The technology age. And what do we mean by that when we refer to an age or to an eon? We're saying that this period of time is characterized and shaped and defined by something particular. By saying that something is the technology age, we're saying that this age, this, this period of time in the life of humanity is defined by our use and the development of technology. And the image that we're being given here by saying that in our deadness to sin, we were following the course of the world, is it saying that, that we are following or we're taking the shape of the characteristics of the world? Just like there's characteristics to a particular age or eon, so there are characteristics to the world. It's saying that we are following the course of the world, is to say we're being shaped by those characteristics. That the world was not simply something we follow, but the world was actually, in following the world, it was doing something to form and shape us. You ever seen, you go to Discovery Channel, this is kind of one of those things where like there's nothing else on, and suddenly you stumble upon it. You're like, oh, this is kind of cool, where you watch people make various object, metal objects or steel objects. What do they do? They heat that metal up in such a way, and to make the object, they pour it into a mold. That that hot metal is being formed and shaped in a certain way. That's the image that's kind of being used here. That we are, in following the world, we are being shaped in a particular way. Actively shaped and fashioned to fit the priorities of the kingdom of this world. And this shaping by the world is an unstoppable force. Like mold, a mold shaping metal or a cookie cutter shaping the dough, this forming is pervasive and it's an irresistible pressure placed upon our lives to form us into the characteristics and priorities of the world. And the world, this kingdom, has what's, what's its primary, primary perspective? What's its primary principle? What's its primary longing? Is to be against God. That's what it's for. The kingdom of this world is the antithesis. It's hatred against God. And therefore, what's the elementary principle that the world seeks to do with us? To shape every part of your life so that any part of your life is against God. The kingdom of this world seeks to shape every aspect so that your sexuality is an antithesis against God. That your work life is against God. That your family life is against God. It twists everything. It, it's insipient. 
It gets into all aspects. It twists every institution and every aspect of life. And the world permeates your mind and heart by gradually shaping you in ways that may be obvious, but most often through ways in which we might be oblivious. Now, often Christians, when we talk about the world and its shaping influence on us, you're familiar with this, right? Oh, the world, you're being shaped by the world. But most often, the way we have talked about this, and the, what, I, what we will often talk about this, is we'll, we'll kind of take low-hanging fruit, the things that are obvious and evident. So, for example, when I was a kid, and we would be told, don't let the world shape you, and usually what that meant was, don't listen to certain kinds of music or don't watch certain movies. Now, here's the question. I just said that the world seeks to shape you and pervade every aspect of your life. So do movies and music shape who you are? Yes, of course it does. And anybody who would not acknowledge so is being a fool. And yet, here's how it's often gone in my generation. Our parents said, listen, don't be shaped by the world. So you can't watch certain movies or dress a certain way or listen to certain music. But we've become very erudite in our ways. And so we said, that's totally fine. That's just way too obvious. What we really have to see is the way that the world is shaping our view of humanity. Oh, we need to see how the world's worldviews and philosophies are shaping us. Look how capitalism is shaping us. Or here's how Marxism is shaping us. Here's how our materialism is shaping us. And I ask you this question, are those things shaping us? And the answer is, yes, absolutely they're shaping you. What I want you to see here is that let's not try to go from generation to generation by saying, well, that's the world, and that's shaping me. But now we've moved on from that. Now this over here is actually the incipient work of the world. They're all the work of the world. The work of the world, the kingdom of this world, is in all places. It's trying to shape you in the places that are obvious and that are not so obvious. It's trying to shape you in ways that are conscious and unconscious. And so this is going to look all kinds of different ways. It's going to shape you through, yes, music, but it's also going to shape you through your use of technology in other ways. The world goes after how we think, but it also goes after how we, what we love. It goes after our practices and our habits as well as our desires. If you, if you think of it this way, everywhere you go and in every institution that you're a part of and every activity of your life, the world is trying to declare, declare to you in that place, you are mine And you are to live for the kingdom of this world against God's. In other words, it's a totally other religion, isn't it? And you can see it in all sorts of places. Do you know that Amazon is a religious site? It's a religious site. It's not simply a place for you to go to consume and get get goods, paper products, or books to you within two days. It's a religious site. It is a place for you to go and deal with, I feel bad about myself, where should I go? Amazon.com, let us see how I can feel better about myself. Amazon tells me about how I should view the world. I should make life about me. I don't even have, think about what, what, how we've done our shopping. It used to be we'd have to get out, we'd have to drive in our car, we'd go to a mall, we'd enter into a building, and we'd be with other people while we shopped. Now we can do it in our pajamas. We can never have to interact with anybody. In other words, the way we're even shopping is shaping who we are. James K.A. Smith, who's a sociologist and Christian philosopher, wrote a book called You Are What You Love. And I'm sorry, I don't have this, this longer quote on the board for you, but listen up as I read this. He said this, We often hear about brand loyalty, even brand devotion. But do people really worship brands? 
Is consumerism really such a worship experience? It may not be as far-fetched as you might think. For example, in a recent study to consider the effect of super brands, super brands being defined as things like Apple or Facebook, researchers made an intriguing discovery. When they analyzed the brain activity of product fans, like the members of the Apple cult, they forgot, they found that the Apple products are triggering the exact same, those who are kind of members of this Apple cult, when they saw Apple products visually, it triggered the exact same portion of the brain as religious imagery triggers in the minds of those of faith. In other words, this is brain on Apple. That what it is trying to do, it's actually trying to shape your worship. In other words, it looks like love. It looks like worship. This means we should say, we should see that all things, that you live in a world that is constantly, pervasively pressuring you, whether you understand it consciously, it is also happening unconsciously, pressuring you into its mold. This means we would say, oh yes, we need to ask ourselves questions about the music we listen to and the movies we watch because there could be content there that is contrary to God and his word that we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't digest, but we also should ask the same questions about watching Fixer Upper on HGTV. That both things are trying to mold and form the habit and the practices of your mind and your heart. They're shaping you. The world is shaping you. And therefore, the pervasiveness of the world affects everything. Everything. Think, just think about all the effects the way the Bible talks about it. It says in 1 Corinthians 2, 6, that the wisdom of this world is foolishness. We can't even think correctly because of the way this world has shaped us. Natural man is described in our passage as simply living along the course of his life, the pattern set for him. And he may, we may think of ourselves as free thinkers, but all the free thinkers of the world are actually being shaped. This is, it's, you see this when you actually begin to look for it, it becomes obvious. Like one of the things that's so funny is that Gap for years and years has essentially tried to market that you're different and you should be you. Gap is Black, white, and gray clothing. Mass-produced for the masses. You're not being a rebel by wearing Gap. No rebel has ever worn Gap. And yet the communication there is that, oh, you're different. You're different. The world has actually affected the way, the way you think. You think you're a free thinker. No, you're being shaped by the world. And understand the degree that it'll go. I found this, this kind of captured me this week. The Bible even says that the world and the way it thinks, it pervades everything even down to your very sorrow. We think of crying, of sorrow and grief as being completely amoral. And yet it says this in 2 Corinthians 7.10, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The world, the kingdom of this world will pervade even the way you do grief and sorrow. So understand that when we were dead in sin, we had no way out. That we were in a maze. You ever done, my kids have these activity books, and they have those mazes where you're supposed to trace a line to try to find your way out of the maze? Understand this, that the world has a thousand different patterns for you to move through that maze, but they all collide with a wall at the end of it. There is no exit it doesn't matter with that, whether that maze looked religious or secular or progressive or conservative, whether it was hedonistic or intellectual, it took you down a maze that ended with a collision with this wall that said, I am against God. 
Because that is the primary, that is the elementary principle of the kingdom of this world. And therefore, when we talk about the world, and we follow, talk about the course of the world, it can be defined as this. It is the force and influence of the world to form and shape every part of our lives towards hatreds, hatred and resistance to God and his kingdom. You've been formed in this way. And to say that we are following the course of this world is... is it's not to say that we, you were in your dead and your sin, you were paddling upstream against the world. No, when you're dead in sin, you were just kind of floating along, allowing the world to shape you in any way it saw fit. That is the image that we had. We had no way out from its, its emphasis and its, its, its uh, uh, pervasiveness in our life. It shaped everything in how you thought about God how you viewed yourself, how you viewed the world. We were conformed completely and utterly to this kingdom of anti-godness, the kingdom of this world. Well, as has been the case for the last number of weeks in which we've looked at Ephesians, there's a lot of bad news. But we've already saw the good news, haven't we? A couple weeks ago, we had our but God moments. We looked at it on Easter Sunday, but God made us alive and he saved us. And so therefore, each of these weeks, we're not simply going to look at the bad news and harp on that entirely, but we're also going to look at the good news, the good news. By grace, it says you have been saved. But understand this, there are, there are specifications, there are nuance to God's salvation. In other words, it says you're dead to sin following the course of this world. Therefore, one of the things that you had to be saved from was the following the course of this world. By grace, you've been saved. Saved from what? You've been saved from following the world. That's one of the aspects of his salvation. We tend to think of it as just kind of this kind of ethereal, yes, he saved me. And we're kind of just kind of floating in spiritual miasma. No, he saved you from specific things. He saved you from following the course of this world. This is what he did. And this is why it says in 1 Timothy 1.15 that Jesus entered this world to save sinners being influenced by this world. He came to remove, remove us from the sinking ship that is this world. And I've used this illustration a couple times in the last couple of months. But I'll keep coming back to it because I think it's important for us to grasp. Right? We tend to think that the, the offer of the Christian life is that you're on a boat and you're out in the, out in the ocean and God has come and he's floated out there on his helicopter and he's dropped the line of Jesus and you've got to grab hold of him. But I've said multiple times, that's not the fact. The fact is that you're not, you cannot reach out to him because you're dead in sin. You're at the bottom of the ocean and you're at the bottom of the ocean in large part because you were part of a sinking ship called the world that took you to the very bottom. That's the image given in the Bible. That if you are inside a ship and cannot get out of it and it is sinking to the ground, that ship is, which promised life to you and protection to you now has become what? It has become your very tomb. And that is what the world is. And that is why we need to be saved. You see, the world for the spiritually dead was an anvil tied around your legs to ensure that you are pulled to the bottom of the ocean floor. That's what it's there for. But Jesus came to rescue us, to rescue us from the world. And therefore, it says this, that if you're going to be rescued from the world, it's called the kingdom, I've said, the kingdom of this world. Therefore, if you're going to be rescued from the kingdom of this world, it means you're inherently going to be going to another kingdom. And so it says this in Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us, Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness, that's the world, and transferred us to what? The kingdom of his beloved son. The salvation that we need from the world came by Jesus, by bringing us into a new kingdom. And how does Jesus do this? 
by entering in this world, resisting this world, and ultimately, as it says in John 16, he says, take heart, because I have, what? I have overcome the world. And do you see what Jesus overcame? He overcame every aspect of the world's pervasiveness in his life. You enter the world, and you floated along with the world completely. You, you didn't feel the pressure of the world. You were happy to float along. You were on a lazy river. That's what's so great about lazy rivers. You do nothing other than avoid the floating diapers in the lazy rivers. That's all you do. And Jesus came, though, and he's somebody who's living for a different kingdom, which means his whole life was lived in utter resistance to the kingdom of this world. He felt the full weight and the pressure, the call to be a hedonist, the call to take on power and to misuse it. Think about Jesus in the wilderness. He goes and fasts for 40 days, and then the evil one comes and tempts him. And what are the various things the evil one uses to tempt Jesus with? He uses at least three different strategies. He takes a hedonistic approach. Jesus, don't you want some bread? Aren't you hungry? If you'll just do this, then I'll give you bread. Then his next approach is, Jesus, don't you want to rule and reign? He takes a governmental approach. Look, you, look, I'll make you the authority over everyone. If you'll just do this, if you'll serve me, then you get this. And then he also takes a religious approach. And if you'll do this, then everyone will bow down and worship you. The pressure of the world through the voice of the evil one. And even think about what Jesus resisted what he under, undertook at the cross, at his own trial. Think about, because I was mentioning earlier that the world is not simply hum, fallen humanity and its sin and sinfulness, but it also now in, involves all of those things that it has enslaved and it is twisted, such as the institutions of man. Think about the institutions of evil that were used against Jesus. Government. Who, threw, who put Jesus on the cross? The Roman government. The institution that's supposed to be there for justice and goodness and righteousness is now being used to destroy the Son of God. Oh, religious institutions, are they there too? Yes. Who's putting Jesus on trial? Who are the prosecutors? It is the Pharisees in the religious order of the day. Oh, and are the people, the rabble, the, the, the gap wearers of the day, are they a part of it as well? Yes. Who is it that shouts, crucify him, crucify him? It is the rabble and the mob. Every aspect of society every pressure of the world, the governments, the institutions, the mob, and yet he overcomes it all. Yes, the world hates him and they crush him, but it is out of that that he defeats them. If the world was a sinking ship of dead people being taken to the bottom, Jesus is the one like James Bond who somehow can hold his breath, dive down into death itself, pull you out of the ship, and bring you back to life. That's what Jesus did in the cross. And it resists the pressures of the sea of this world, the crushing weight in order to bring you out of this world. Now understand the nuances of this good news. I understand this is a bony sermon with lots of points and lots of passages, but bear with me. I've got three things I want you to tell you about the nuances of this good news. Very briefly, first is this, that when Jesus saves you, that the nuances of this good news is this, that we are brought into a new world. It's called the kingdom of God. That he saves you from this world, not to leave you just kind of wandering in no man's land in the battle between Jesus and this world. No, he brings you immediately into his kingdom. Understand the pervasiveness and the all-encompassing nature of what the world has sought to do, to do to you, to affect your sexuality and the way you think and your philosophy and your work life and your family life. It tries to affect everything. And know what? The kingdom of God does exactly the same thing. 
And when Jesus says, I brought you to my kingdom, he says, my kingdom and my way is now going to affect your sexuality and your work life and the way you do family and the way you think and your philosophies and your worldviews and the way you do government and the way you do civic life, everything. Because when the kingdom of God breaks in, it is not him coming to tweak the world system. It is him coming to give us a what? An entirely new system. It is a whole new world that he's giving us. And therefore, therefore, you're a people who are always living in two worlds, aren't you? You're always a people living in two worlds. He has come to make you a part of his kingdom, to be a part of making his kingdom manifest in your, in your family life and in your work life, to shape, have your life shaped by the priorities of this king and the way he thinks and his view of the world. It's an all-encompassing change. And therefore, to be saved by Jesus, to be brought into his kingdom, it changes a few things. It changes everything. It changes everything. And now we get to be a part of this alternative kingdom. We live between two worlds, or we live in the context of two worlds. We are part of the kingdom of heaven, while at the same time we reside here on earth. One of the great, clear phrase of this in the beginning of Colossians Paul writes to the church at Colossae, and he says this, I write to you in Christ at Colossae. You are in Christ, you're part of his kingdom, and yet you still reside in the kingdom of this world physically. In the same way, this is why Jesus prays for the apostles and for us in John chapter 17. What does he pray? I pray not that you would take them out of this world, but that you would keep them in your name, that you would keep them labeled with the name of the king, that their life would reflect the priorities of the king, that they would remain close to you and seek you in this life. Now, here's what that means. That means your life is going to be filled with a lot of tension and a lot of cognitive dissonance and a whole, whole lot of battle. In other words, when the church and when your life and the world around you have different priorities, you should not be surprised. You should not be surprised. You should not be surprised. Now, this stinks, doesn't it? That means your whole of your rest of your life, once you become a Christian, is war. That's not fun. And frankly, we've already talked about the pervasiveness of, of the world, the kingdom of the world. It's going to come after everything. It's going to try to affect you in all sorts of ways. And we look at this and we go, man, it was a lot easier if it was just don't listen to certain music and don't watch certain movies. If that's what it means to avoid the world, that is easy. But wait, it affects the way I think politically? Are you saying that actually it's invaded my church institutions as well? That the world could be here? They could be involved in these things? Yes. And that is, can be really discouraging, can't it? It's an exhausting thing. To, it seems like every corner we come around, it's like, oh, oh, there's more of the world. And this seems to be affecting me in a negative way. And I have to fight that. And I have to push against those pressures. Yes. But I have good news. The second part of good news is this. That when he calls you to be a part of his contrary kingdom, he also gives you help. We are given a new spirit to resist the world. We are given a new spirit to resist the world. Second Corinthians 2, or 1 Corinthians 2 verse 12 says this, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. The spirit is from God. And we are told that when we were brought into this new kingdom, we are given an armor, the armor of the spirit to help us. And the spirit of who? The spirit of Andy? I mean, Andy's great. He's very bold and courageous. 
But, you know, there's a few places that Andy likes to go and run and hide. They give him the spirit of Christ. Who's the one who overcame the world? And that same spirit that resides in Christ now resides in you to give you the power to overcome the world. And so our old spirit, we look at these things and we go, oh my goodness, life is a war and this is going to be hard. And Jesus says, yeah, that's great, isn't it? You, but I'm going to give you courage. I'm going to give you courage by giving you my spirit. So you're not timid in the face of the world. You're not crushed by the world. And I love what he says in 1 John. Because we have the spirit of God, it means we are also overcomers. 1 John 4 verse 4, look what it says. It says little children. I love that phrase in the context of what it's about to say. You're just little kids in the face of an enormous world, the kingdom of this world, and it's like us. But it says this, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. It is, if you were to do a, a bizarre kind of, kind of picture of this, in that kind of like medieval kind of picture, you'd see like a little kid facing an enormous giant or a dragon, fire-breathing dragon. That's the world, and yet you are clothed in the armor of God and the spirit of God who protects you. That's the image that we're given so that we might overcome because our king has overcome. And third bit of good news is this. The ultimate victory of God's kingdom is guaranteed. It's guaranteed. He's won it already. The guaranteed, he has a guaranteed victory of the new world over the old world. The victory of the kingdom of God over the world and its systems, its powers, is guaranteed for us. And therefore, guess what? We don't have to hand ring when it appears that we're losing. And for many of you who have lived long enough, you have come and you have swallowed the belief that we are losing in this world. You're losing in this world. That's the belief that we've had. And that there is this sense of discouragement that many Christians have had that we have been resisting, quote-unquote, the culture for 40 and 50 years, and yet we're like those doing this, and we're getting pushed further and further back. And it, there may be some things visibly that we should not rejoice about. You know what? It is for the good of society when the church is doing well. It's good for human flourishing. But in those places where we see the church being pushed back, and we see the world pressing in, and we look at things and we go, this is not going well. That we don't have to wring our hands, and we don't have to throw our hands up, and we don't have to go to the world's systems to try to fix it and to do battle. But instead, we go to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and we say, I don't understand. I don't understand why we are being pushed back in these ways culturally. But I cling to Jesus. And, I don't, and, and for some of you, you're like me, you're a parent of young children, and part of like that, that ex, I totally understand that experience of like, okay, kids, we're not going to watch that because we're not allowing that pervasiveness of the world. And that is what is called wisdom. That is right and good because do movies affect us? Yes. But also why nationalism affects us and church life can affect us negatively. And there's various philosophies of this world that can affect my children that are insipid and gross and they're nasty and they would love to sneak their way into my kids' hearts and lives. And so in all places I resist and I go, but my goodness, how can I resist in all the places? I feel like I'm on a ship with like a creaking, cracking hole in which the world just seems to be coming into my house in all sorts of ways and it's going to take my kids. You know what I do? You know what I do? Or I ought to do? Instead of wringing my hands... And saying, we're just going to, man, we're just going to separate in absolutely any other way because we know that won't actually work in the end because the world lives in my house already. Is instead I get on my knees and I pray and I say, Spirit of the living God, you're the one, the Spirit of Christ, you overcome. 
You have overcome. You promised to overcome. And so, Spirit of the living God, would you come and overcome in my children's life? Would you protect them from the world? I have no ability to protect them. I can be as wise as I possibly can, but the world is smarter than I am. But he's not smarter. The world is not smarter than the king of kings. Would you protect my children? Would you protect me? And so we do our primary battle spiritually in this world by looking with hope to the king who is victorious and whose reign and rule is coming into this world and into this place via his church and there will be nothing that will stop it. It says in 1 John 2, 17, the world is passing away along with its desires. And in John 16, 33, he says, I have overcome the world. He said the last thing to happen is this. Jesus says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lay all things under my feet. I'm going to destroy all the rulers and the principalities of this world, all these things that tempt you and that dog you and that seem to attack you, the church and your home and your life as a Christian. I'm going to put them under my feet, and one day, one day, we will be at complete peace. And so we cling to those things, Christian. You've been given a new world. Look forward to that. You've been given a spirit to resist, and you've been a promise, a guarantee of victory so that we can have hope even when things look bad. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we could put a label on so many things that is the world. They could take a liberal bent, a conservative bent. They could take a religious bent. They could take a secular bent. Lord, it is when we open our eyes to the pervasiveness of the world, it gets pretty scary. We realize we're in enemy territory, that we are surrounded. <laughs> and maybe that's the way you want us to be. Lord, we are paratroopers of your kingdom. And so, Spirit of the living God, come and empower us now to resist, to fight, and remind us daily, Lord, of the king that we serve and the kingdom that we look forward to. We trust that you're going to bring your kingdom to bear in this place. Help us to cling to that in the days in which it feels so, so difficult. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.